Good morning. If we've not met, uh, my name is Carson, and I, along with a critical and stellar team of adult volunteers, help lead our student ministries uh, here at North Wake. Also, my wife Ashley and I have just recently welcomed our first child, our first son, into the world, Grayson. So, yeah, it's exciting, it's exciting. If, if you hear some really ra- loud cries come from the nursery, it's probably him. He has a very, very loud cry. Uh, props to our friend Elena Miller for the photo. I think I need to say that. Um, and then also, uh, Grayson, he was born just a month ago. Uh, so he's grown a little bit uh, since taking this picture. But I, I really enjoy being a dad, actually. Uh, I love to hold Grayson. I love to talk to him. Uh, in fact, we have quite a few one-way conversations these days, uh, which my mom told me I should enjoy while they last. Uh, Apparently, there are some negatives when kids learn to talk and talk back at you, which I don't know why my mom would say say anything like that. Uh, So I I try to take advantage of these one-way conversations while I have them and give Grayson a heads up about life and, you know, about how things are going to go. I was just telling him the other day that at some point, In the future, I'm probably going to ask him to do something that he would rather not do, like clean the bathroom or cut the grass or take out the trash. And he might utter unthinkable words like, why? And to which I'll probably reply and give him a reasonable response. reason why, why he should obey, uh, like, you know, clean your bathroom so an organism doesn't grow in there that hijacks your body and brain for the rest of your life. I don't know. Uh, and even then, after I have given him some great reasons, we've gone back and forth, he might still utter some unthinkable words. I don't feel like it. To which I envision myself replying, very calmly and patiently, <laughs> lovingly, wisely, and kindly. Some of you are parents, right? You're like, yeah, good luck, bro. Uh, I'll reply, son, could you just do it because I've asked you to? No other reason, just because I've asked. And his response to me in that moment, his obedience or disobedience reveals what he thinks and what he believes about me as his father. Does he see me as trustworthy? Does he see me as obedience worthy? Does he see me as his rightful authority? Does he see me as having his best interest in mind? His obedience or disobedience is inseparably bound to what he believes about me as his father. And kids, this is probably one reason why uh, your parents make such a big deal out of obedience. Over the past three weeks, we've been exploring one of the great devotions that is to mark the life of a Christian, and that is love for their neighbor, particularly, particularly our neighbors who are apart from Christ, who do not believe in, in Jesus. So especially today, we're talking as this pertains to the practice of evangelism. So talking with our family, friends, co-workers about how they can come to know God as their father through the work of Jesus Christ, his son. 
And through the last few sermons, God has given us through his word some really compelling reasons to speak up and begin spiritual conversations with our friends. And if you remember the sermon series, some of these reasons were um, like the reality and sorrow of hell. That eternity apart from God is the fate for those who persist in their rejection of Jesus. Reasons such as the joy of heaven, that through faith in Christ, our neighbors can come to know and dwell with God forever. Uh, Reasons like the fact that God is in control and sovereign over the spread of his good news throughout the whole earth. So we don't have to worry about how all this is going to end up. He's going to get the job done. And then last uh, week, Larry talked about reasons like there's only one way to be made right with God. And that's through his son, Jesus. He's the one door, the one gate, the one shepherd. So we've been given some incredible motivations and reasons for speaking up and starting evangelistic conversations with our neighbors and friends. But today, I I think we'll see from, from God's word that evangelism at its core is not primarily concerned, not primarily fueled, excuse me, by a concern for others, although that's certainly part of it. Evangelism at its core is a matter of obedience and honor to our Heavenly Father. And I think Scripture makes this pretty clear. Uh, Matthew 28, before returning to heaven, Jesus gave his followers explicit commands to make him known throughout the world. This is a familiar passage to us. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Uh, At the end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. At the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says his last words to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it's pretty clear that proclaiming the good news of Jesus is a command that we've been given by our Lord. And yet, how many of you find yourselves like like me, still sometimes reluctant, hesitant, and even disobedient in this area of our faith. For many, maybe even most of us, evangelism is a command that we seem to have a really hard time fulfilling and maybe even feel some sense of kind of constant low-grade guilt about our failures here. And yet, instead of simply shouting at us a celestial, just do this because I told you so, our good, good Heavenly Father wants to use his word and his spirit to reveal to us and remind us of his worth, of his trustworthiness, of his strength and his love. Now, why would he do that? Because our obedience to him is fueled by our affection for him. 
So let's return to Psalm 96. Uh, This was the passage that we read at the very beginning of the service. And let's see again our Lord so that we would be compelled to obey him, not merely out of duty, but out of passion for his honor, his worth, and his fame. And while you're turning to Psalm 96, let me just say that if you are here and you're not a Christian, that maybe you've been lovingly dragged here by family or friends, uh, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope that you'll hang with me today um, because my, my great hope is that you would see, even though Christians have often a hard time living out what we say we believe, we do believe that we serve a God who is so good, so merciful to us that he is worthy of every ounce of our affection and yours as well. So let's turn to Psalm 96, starting with verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Do you ever sing? Do you ever sing to someone? Uh, Do you ever sing to God? And not just Sunday mornings. I mean, sometimes we sing to God when we're here. Sometimes we're just singing. I I know how it goes. But typically, we sing to who? We sing to people that we love for the most part. I know like if you're a pop star, revenge, breakup, uh, songs are all the rage. But even in those songs, they are singing out of a broken heart to someone that they loved. Are they not? Here in these verses, what what I think is just interesting and very neat is that the commands to declare God's glory, to tell of his salvation, are preceded by an invitation to sing. And what's this business of singing a new song anyway? Uh, Is the writer just bored with the old songs? Uh, Can he not find the lyrics to the song he wants to sing on Google Scrolls or whatever they had back then? No, in Scripture, when God's people would sing a new song, it was in response to a new work of God, a saving work of God for them. And you see this phrase pop up mostly in the Psalms, the book of Isaiah, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation. So for example, in Psalm chapter 40, David writes this, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. And then in the last book of the Bible, we see a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So why are they singing new songs? Well, they're singing because he's worthy, because he ransomed Because he heard me, he delivered me, set my feet upon a rock, he put a new song in my mouth. New songs are in response to new, marvelous, saving works of God. 
And you see this so clearly in Psalm 96, 1 through 3. What is it that the people are to be telling everyone about? Look at verse 2. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Verse 3. Declare his glory, his marvelous works. So if it's not clear to you today, if this has never been made clear to you, let me offer a reminder of why we sing to God. It's because he's delivered us. He's ransomed us. Even though we have miserably failed to give him the affection that he is worthy of, even though we have loved and pined for anything other than God, he did not cast us aside or give up on us, but came for us, dying on a cross, rising again to give us new life, bearing a punishment that we should have endured. This is a marvelous work. This is what makes us write and sing new songs of love to God. Now, I've not researched this extensively, but I do think it's interesting to take a look at the worship literature of various religions. From what I can find, for the most part, the Christian faith has the corner on the market of songs of love and gratitude to God. Just think with me of some of the songs that we've sung and that have been written across the ages. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Or love, so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. Or how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful, is my Savior's love for me or my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And we could go on quoting these songs. But it's God's marvelous work that's what makes people want to sing to the Lord, not because they have to, but because they cannot do anything else. And the best music, the best singing, the best declaration always comes from delight, more than it comes from duty. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents essentially tricked me into taking violin lessons. Uh, I love you, Mom and Dad. If you listen to this online later, I'm not bitter. I've gotten over this. Uh, we're, we're good. Uh, but they told me, that if I just would go to one violin lesson, then I could try it out. If I didn't like it, I could just say so. Okay, sounds easy enough. So I go to the lesson, I meet the teacher, really nice, learn about the violin. After the lesson, I get back in the car, my mom says, well, what'd you think? I said, yeah, I mean, it was all right, but I don't think I wanna learn how to play the violin. And my mom tells me, too bad we've already paid for a year of lessons. <laughs> and do they just think that I was so compliant that I would just happily agree? Yes, mother and father, I would love to play the violin for you. Um, that's, that's not exactly how it went. Um, anytime we would play for events at church or uh, Christmas time, we would go to nursing homes to play for folks there, which is obviously a great thing to do, <laughs> but I, I dreaded it, to be honest with you. I know that's a dark place in my heart coming out, but I, I did not look forward 
to, to doing that. But one day in my house, I found my dad's old guitar. And man, that guitar, I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Chicks dig the guitar, right? And so I, I did. I taught myself how to play. And I could promise you, the music that came out of the guitar was far superior to the music that came out of the violin. And I know part of that's because the violin is harder to learn to play. If you play the violin, you are my hero. You are my hero. But this psalm, Psalm 96, invites us into so much more than screechy violin evangelism. It invites us to sing in response to God's marvelous work for us with new songs propelled by new hearts that are growing more and more in awe of how God has loved us. Pastor John Piper put it really well when he said, how can you say to the nations, or to your neighbors for that matter, be glad in God when you are not glad in God? You see, there will be no witness until there is worship. We will not declare that in which we do not delight. We won't share until we sing. And we won't sing until we've soaked in the marvelous work that God has accomplished for us through Christ. So let's not lose sight. Let's not lose sight of the marvel of what God has done for us. So why do we sing? Why do we evangelize? Because of what God has done. We saw that in verses 1 through 3. But also because of who he is. Look with me at verses 4 through 6. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. This is what it's like in God's presence. Splendor, majesty, strength, beauty. So why do we sing? Why do we tell? Because God is just straight up great. And he deserves our worship. Notice how the verse connects. Our measure of worship should match the measure of his greatness. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. So our level of worship is meant to reflect the level of his greatness, which is like a lot. And notice how, notice how this is contrasted in verse 5 with the worthlessness of all other so-called gods. They're referred to as worthless idols, literally nothings. And so your level of devotion to them should match their level of worth, which is none. And if you stop and think about it, uh, this, this is pretty convicting. It's convicting to me. Because apparently one of the greatest scandals in the universe that I could commit occurs almost every day. I give to things that have no worth much of my devotion and affection. And I treat the one who has ultimate worth as if he is somehow inconsequential or peripheral or optional. And our affections here can just be so flip-flopped. And I'm not saying that you can't have a hobby and that you can't ever watch a movie again. But what I am saying is, and I think this passage is saying, is that we should devote our affection to things in proportion to their worth. And if we find something of lesser 
self-worth that is pulling our affection away from God, then we're starting to tread on thin ice. And just to think of all the days that we've treated the ultimate as if he's insignificant. And we've treated the insignificant as if it was ultimate. And yet, he still died for us, which makes his name all the more worthy and all the more beautiful. And grasping his worth, getting a glimpse of his greatness, will be the hottest fire to fuel your evangelism. That is cooking with gas. Notice how verses 1 through 3 connect with verse 4, with the word for. Why do we sing? Why do we bless? Why do we declare? Why do we tell of God? For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. When evangelism becomes difficult for you or a love for the lost has grown cold, a deep comprehension of God's worth and value is what will keep you going and is what will get you going in the first place. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, In the New Testament, the thing that enabled Jesus' first followers to endure all that they had to undergo to take the good news of Jesus throughout the known world was a deep conviction that his name was worthy to be known and praised by all people. Uh, Look with me at Matthew 19. This is Jesus speaking. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Why did they leave behind everything precious to them? For the sake of his name. Or in Acts chapter 21, the apostle Paul, when he's on the brink of being arrested and imprisoned for his faith, Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. In his letters, Romans, uh, the first chapter of of that letter, Paul says, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of his name among all the peoples. At the end of the same letter, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see. Those who have never heard will understand. He wants to go where Christ has not been named because his name is worthy of praise and it's not getting it in those places. 3 John, uh, verses 7 and 8, the Apostle John says this about the first Christian missionaries. He said, they've gone out. Why? For the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Why did they go? For the sake of the name. Why did they give sacrificially? For the sake of the name. It's a great reminder to support our missionaries. Let's make those brackets go away in next month's bulletin, right? And and this truth has not changed in the past 2,000 years. A friend of mine who is a missionary in North India Uh, once told me of a day not long after he had moved there. And this particular day, he was was quite hard and hot and lonely. He was discouraged. And he was basically just ready to go home. And to top it off, he's walking up this hill 
to go try to really steep hill to go meet with some folks to talk about Jesus, the whole reason that he's there. And as he's going, he trips and slips and slides back down the hill. And as he's laying there, some very human thoughts begin to run through his head. Thoughts like, I hate this country. It is hot. It stinks. There's animals everywhere. I don't like the food. And I'm not even sure that I love the people anymore. It's a hard confession for a missionary. But in that moment, he was gently reminded by God that he was not there for India. He was there because God's name was worthy of renown among those people. And he's still there years later. The reality is evangelism can be hard. It can be daunting. But when God cultivates within us a heart for his fame, then how we are received, how our conversations go, how our reputation might be affected, the social awkwardness, the risk, all of that begins to fade to the background. Uh, if you read the one weekly email that Northwake sends out each week, and I hope you do read those. Uh, he who gets our emails and reads them, he it is that loves us. That's our staff motto. And um, it sounds biblical to me. I don't know. Uh, then in, in the one, you saw that there was some information about an evangelism training seminar led by a couple of our Northwake pastors that's coming up uh, in September. And this training involves going out into Raleigh and starting up conversations with people about Christ. Crazy, huh? Uh, but to be perfectly candid with you, that sort of thing intimidates me. To strike up a conversation with a stranger about spiritual things feels unnatural and it feels awkward. But you know what? Why would I balk at an opportunity to speak of the worth of Christ to someone? Why would I be skittish about a chance to tell someone about what God has done for them? Probably because I'm more concerned about my own fame and my own name than God's. There's a great verse in Scripture that if that's you, if you're in the same boat with me, there's a verse that we need to be praying together. Isaiah 26, 8. This verse hangs up on a board in our living room, in, in our apartment. It says, yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name, your renown are the desire of our hearts. And I pray that this verse would increasingly mark me so that whether with a stranger or a family member or a coworker or an actual neighbor, I'm more than happy to speak of Christ when the opportunity arises because he is worthy of our love and our affection. And as God begins to answer this prayer for you, as he begins to grant you greater and greater desire for his fame, this is what we're going to say together. Verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7 through 9 with me. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Do you see what's going on here in this passage? All, all the families of the peoples, all the nations, everyone is invited to enter into worship 
of the Lord. So the Gentiles, the non-Israelite nations, are coming into God's courts in this psalm, which if you know Jewish history, that was an unthinkable thing for that time. And what adds to the marvel of all this is these are the nations that were worshiping the worthless idols that we looked at up in verse 5. And yet somehow, God's going to do a marvelous work so that these idol-worshiping nations will now come into His presence. So this psalm is, is clearly looking forward past its own time to a day when people from all over the globe worship the one true God. And this is the scene that we see in heaven in the book of Revelation. We read a portion of this just earlier. Revelation 5, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Because Christ is worthy of the worship of all people, this is what makes us, compels us to invite our neighbors to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Although I'd understand if you don't want to exactly use that vocabulary in your conversation with Bob at the water cooler. You know, hey Bob, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. But make no mistake, that's exactly what we're calling Bob to do. And some of you might wonder, what is up with God demanding that everybody worship him? Doesn't that sound a little bit egotistical? Uh, I taught high school um, in South Carolina a couple of years back, and one of my former students asked me this question. She said, uh, it just seems like God is a little desperate for compliments, kind of like a teenage drama queen. And it's, it's a good question, and it used to bother another fellow, an author by the name of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he was bothered because most of us despise people who demand perpetual praise, don't we? And we despise even more the loony crowds that are willing to heap up such praise on them. And Lewis found the Psalms, in particular, extremely distressing. Uh, but what he eventually realized is that real praise is merely, merely the expression of enjoyment. And this is what he said. Hang with me. He said, what I didn't realize is that the whole world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, Romeo praising Juliet, and vice versa. Readers, their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. Scholars, you made it in there. Nice job. Uh, he says, we all say things like, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? 
Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak about what they care about. He goes on to say, to, to see what all this really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God, drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight which flows from us incessantly, again, in effortless and perfect expression. And this is kind of his key point here. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So God is not desperate for your compliments. He does not need your worship, but he does invite you to enjoy him. And by enjoying him, you will worship him. And by inviting water cooler Bob to exuberant worship, we're inviting him to everlasting joy. And this invitation that we make to our neighbors, it really matters. Because if they would have no part of God's joy, then they are left only with his judgment. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. Say among the nations. So what is it that we're supposed to say among the nations? The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people's with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the true story of the world. This is where everything is headed. And the Apostle Paul, he echoes this psalm when speaking about Jesus to a group of Greek philosophers uh, in Athens. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, he says much the same thing in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he, that being Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Make no mistake, Christ will come again to judge the world. And, and maybe you noticed, too, at the end of this psalm, that his return and reign are a cause for joy. Because he's coming to judge righteously and to right every wrong, the world is going to flourish under his reign. You see, even the heavens and the sea and the field and the trees get in on the celebration here. And yet, this will also be a day of, of mixed reactions. One day, every eye will see him. Everyone will confess his lordship. But for some, this will be a day of dread and not delight. 
all people will eventually recognize the kingship of Christ. But it seems that God's heart is that all people would turn to him now and find their joy in him before the last day. One of Jesus' first followers, Peter, says it like this. He said, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to return, that is, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the true story of the world. This is how it ends. And yet, God is patient. He longs for the nations to find joy instead of judgment. And when we long for God's name to be known and adored, not just recognized, but worshipped and sung to by all people, we will find the confident urgency that we need to overcome all these all these barriers that seem to hold us back from actually beginning these conversations with the people that matter to us. Our good Father has given us a good command to make his name known among our neighbors and among the nations. And if you're like me, your level of obedience in this area in many ways reflects a lack of passion for God to be worshipped and enjoyed by our neighbors. And yet, here today, God has given us a fresh reminder of who he is, of what he's done, of how supremely worthy of our affection he is. So, how will this affect the way that we speak of Christ this week? Perhaps some of you um, you've found some open doors for gospel conversations that are beginning to open right in front of you, but you've been reluctant to take the step and walk through from fear or worry. But Christ is worthy of your obedience here, and he is worthy of your friends, your neighbors' affection. Maybe some of you are discouraged because you've been praying for and speaking with someone for a long time about Christ, and they have yet to seem open to that. Christ is worthy of your persistence in this area. Perhaps today you've realized that you have lost some of the wonder of who God is. You've lost some of the wonder of what he's done for you, and he has become largely inconsequential to you. Christ is worthy of your devotion once again. And maybe, maybe you just need to stick around in Psalm 96 and stick around in Isaiah 26 until he again begins to show you his beauty and his worth. Maybe some of you have been praying about going to hard places around the world. And there are some barriers that seem insurmountable to you. And praying that 
a fresh vision of God's worth and an affection for him and a passion for his name would press you wherever he might lead you to go. Let me ask the worship team to come back up as, as we close out. If you'd like to make any of those things, any of these things that we've talked about a matter of prayer today, then please respond in prayer where you are or feel free to come forward as we sing and as, as we spend some time in prayer. Uh, if you'd like to ask for prayer for a particular need, um, some of our pastors and leaders will be up here as we sing and after the service, so feel free to come grab us and, and talk with us. We'd love to talk and pray with you. So if you'd bow with me, let's pray and let's sing and let's obey this week for the glory of Christ's name. Let's pray. Lord, we need to confess that so many days we have taken you all too lightly. You are worthy of our affection. So show us again. Thank you for showing us again your beauty and your worth. I pray that we would respond to that with nothing less than total zeal to see you known, to see you loved by the people that you've placed in our lives. So thank you. Thank you for your marvelous work on our behalf. Would it propel in us new songs, new obedience, new conversations? We pray all this through Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing.